from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And welcome to another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show podcast. It's great to have you here. Those of you tuning in from around the world, uh, it's super to have you here. We're taping in studio today, uh, the lightning round, and so we are live on some social media platforms, and I'm taking questions as they scroll by very fast on any subject under the sun, offering life advice and relationships and career and so on and so forth. As you know, my name is Sven Erlinson, and I have a counseling practice of the last 30 years, um, presently in Manhattan, New York City, um, corporate counseling and relationships and soul counseling. Um, and I am in studio tonight with my man on the boards running all things production and so much more. Rob, how are you? Ready for liftoff, Captain. Are you, sir? Yo. How has your day been? Most excellent. Thank Most you. Most excellent. I yes. love it. I love it. And we have KC back in the booth, and we are fired up and ready to go. Um, I two caveats on tonight's uh, um, lightning round. One, if my voice sounds funny, it is funny. I have literally been silent for the last three, three, two, three nights healing my voice because on a whim, I drove from the New York City area all the way up to Buffalo, New York for the Minnesota Vikings, Buffalo Bills football game and had front row seats right down in the uh, goal line and watched my Vikings pull out a squeaker. And so I, as you can tell, I lost my voice, but it's coming back. So if I sound a little croaky, that's why. Lastly, I just want to remind everyone that uh, episodes of the Badass Counseling Show podcast come out on Thursdays. We'll have a new one uh, dropping each Thursday at midnight and also on Sundays. Uh, and Lightning Round is on Sundays and the counseling shows are on Thursdays. So let's dive right in. What are your questions for me? Um, what do you do when you've left someone out of guilt, but you want to do better and want them back? You've left someone out of guilt. Why would you leave someone out of guilt unless you feel you've done something uh, to hurt them uh, and you felt bad and so you walked away, um, but you want to do better and want them back? You go to them and you tell them what you want. You go to them and you tell them the truth. You say, listen, I feel horrible and that's the reason I left and I shouldn't have done it or I should have talked it out with you or what have you, but I left and I realized I want you back. And all you can do is put your truth out there. That's it, that's all you can do. I mean, sure, you can beg and you can plead, but what does it say that someone is only coming to you if you beg and plead, right? It's basically saying um, you're having to convince someone. And so what you need to do going into that is actually precisely the same thing I do every time I go to a Minnesota Vikings football game or watch them on TV. Having lived through four Super Bowl losses myself of my team, the Minnesota Vikings, I just assume they're gonna lose the next game. I just assume they're never gonna make it to the Super Bowl again and they're certainly not gonna win. So I just assume it's gonna go badly, all right? You need to assume the same thing when you go back and ask this person to come back into a relationship because if you're going in with your expectations so fucking high, what if they say no? You're gonna be fucking shattered. You gotta go in there, put, a, put your truth out there and let the chips fall where they will. Otherwise, you're, you're setting yourself up from extraordinary pain and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm a, I'm a believer in just putting the truth out there. All right, next question. How do you cope with generalized anxiety without medications? I'm very strict and won't take pills. Travis, 
That's a great question. And I think if you were, for those of you who have followed me a lot, you know that I'm a believer in flushing out pain. That anxiety and depression uh, in so many cases, I'm not saying all, in so many cases is driven by pain that is stored inside of the body. And so generalized anxiety or any sort of anxiety, for the most part, is driven by that pain that's inside and the fears that go with it, particularly the fears, fear of those pains happening again. So the answer is not to keep running from that pain, to keep running from those fears, but in fact, to go into them. And that means welcoming them. That means allowing all of those things up that you've been trying to keep away from or keep locked down. And we deal with them by journaling it out, going to counseling, writing letters to people that you have who have been pain points in your life, sources of pain in your life. And there are other tools. I talk about those in my book. There's a hole in my love cup. One of them is the Sedona Method. I'm just gonna take two seconds here. I didn't write this book. I get no royalties for the book, The Sedona Method, but I'm a big believer in it as a tool for releasing pain. Now, my book goes somewhat a different angle. My book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, takes on releasing of the pain and confronting fears and identifying core beliefs driving the pain and the fears and the core beliefs that you were taught about yourself that you can't even see. But as far as just in terms of releasing pain and unwanted uh, feelings, uh, the Sedona Method is a very powerful tool. There's another one, um, and I don't think I mentioned this one in my last book. Um, it's, uh, excuse me, your life is now, and it's written by Doreen Banizak. Now, whether or not you ascribe to all of what she writes in her book, she uh, lays out a um, technique for releasing pain as well, and she calls it an accepting technique. The book is, excuse me, your life is now. So those two books, excuse me, your life is now, and the Sedona Method, I strongly recommend, particularly the Sedona Method, as methods for getting out all of the pain that is driving your anxiety and driving your depression and driving your anger. Next question. This is from R. Higgin, 24. Can I help new potential partner heal from past heartbreak and be open to new love? First of all, the big question in someone else healing or in anyone healing is, do they want to heal? When I get someone coming to me, for instance, uh, today I had a woman reach out to me um, wanting counseling for her 18-year-old son. And one of the things, or 17, 18, right in there. And one of the things I asked her is, does your son actually want counseling? Because if you're trying to counsel someone who is unmotivated or resistant to that counseling, it's a Sisyphean task. You're pushing that that big giant stone up the hill and it just keeps rolling back on you. Um, can you. So can you help your potential partner heal from past heartbreak and be open to new love? You can give love. You can be an instrument of love in their world, in your actions, in your words, in your kindness, in your touch, um, and your openness. And you can encourage them, but if you encourage too much, then it becomes pushy. Then you're just trying to fix them. And uh, you can talk about it with them, ask them about it, but you got to be willing to back off. Because anytime you're talking about the notion of someone healing, that implies that they have pain. And if they have pain, you need to fucking tread gently. Anytime someone is sharing their real shit or even close to their real shit, you got to take off your shoes, so to speak. You have to take off your shoes. This is sacred ground. You have to tread very gently. We're not talking about the laundry list or the grocery list anymore. We're talking about serious, uh, soft stuff. And so what I'm saying is, can you help that person heal? Um, no. What you can do is you can provide an open door. You can provide love. You can provide kindness and support. But in the end, they have to want it. Then if they express that they want it, you can help them find resources. But in the end, but you can't push too hard. You, you can open the doors gently, but they have to want it and they have to take the steps amid sort of the context of your love. All right, next question. 
I'm reading Badass Jesus, The Serious Athlete and the Life of Noble Purpose that you wrote, Sven, and I love it. Well, thank you very much. No question there, but thank you very much. And that is a non-sectarian book, believe it or not. Um, I wrote it. How to decide between unhappy uh, and stability in my 15-year marriage versus happy and many changes in divorce. And I have four kids, Bridget says. How do you decide... Well, start with, first of all, I'm going to assume that you either journal or are in counseling or you have some mechanism for getting your thoughts and your feelings out of you, Bridget. You've heard me say it a million times. If you follow me, you've heard me say it. You have to flush this shit out. Furthermore, we get clarity. The more we codify our thoughts, rather than just letting them fucking tumble in our head, the more we give them words and put that those words to paper. The more we do that, the greater clarity we have because we see it. One of the things that I require of all my uh, clients, a first client, they're a potential client, is that they have to write an autobiography for me. I make exceptions in the rarest of cases, but they have to write an autobiography. And one of the effects of that oftentimes is when they write that autobiography, they have a sort of holy shit epiphany moment. I didn't realize X, Y, or Z about my life. And I didn't see, wow, or Man, it was so shocking to me. Putting things in writing gives us clarity. And so back to uh, it's Bridget Darling's question. How do I decide between unhappy and stable in a 15-year marriage versus happy and many changes in divorce? And by the way, Sven, I have four kids, she writes. In your writing or, you know, counseling, whatever, but in your writing, in your journaling, I recommend making two columns. One, uh, on one side, label it, unhappy and, stab and stable versus on the right side, happy and many changes, i.e. divorce. And then I would list above, above all else, all of the fears in each column. What do you fear the very most about unhappy and stable and staying in that marriage? And what do you fear the very most about happy and many changes in divorce? Because until you can articulate fears, those fears are operating and undermining your courage, undermining your decision-making. But uh, relationships are, and decisions are very much driven by fear. However, that being said, you don't want your life driven by fear. Fear and happiness are inversely correlated. And so the second page is two columns, same headings, and you ask yourself, and the question is, um, what would this, what's the benefit? What's the pro? And it's not just a pro-cons list, two lists. It's fear and love, fear and joy, fear and exuberance. And then uh, as you list that, you will begin to get greater clarity. And as you, particularly on that fears list, on those two fears lists, Circle the one that's the biggest in each one. And then ask yourself the question, if this fear were to come to pass, would I be okay? Because very often the fears are what keep us locked and in place and inert and in, unable to live. But, and we, the reason they keep us on inert is because we fear that if that happened, I won't be okay. And the bottom line is you have to look at that in each of those fears and ask yourself the question, if this comes to pass, will I be okay? And the truth is, yeah, you will, and you'll adjust, you'll be fine. And so at some point, what's going to happen, you ask yourself, you know, how do, how do I decide? You don't have to decide. And I know you're thinking, what the fuck does that mean? You don't have to decide. If you're ever in a place in life where you don't know the answer, or you're saying, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, or you're saying, gosh, I'm really confused, or people ask you, what are you gonna do? And you're saying, I don't know. Anytime you're in that situation, let it go. It's not time to make a decision. Let it go and trust that when it's time, you'll know.
you'll know. And the way you'll know is your pain will get so bad that the answer is obvious. You're trying to preempt uh, a decision because you still like being in it. And, and even if you ever leave, there will be things about it you will miss, but the pain hasn't gotten bad enough and change won't occur until the pain gets bad enough. And so the question really becomes, I would, if you were my client, I'd simply tell you, let it go. It's not time yet. I would do these exercises that I've told you and then let it go because it's not time yet. And when it is time, you will fucking know. You won't think it. You won't wonder. You won't believe. You won't hope. You will know. Next question. Advice on overcoming jealousy and destroyed self-worth after betrayal. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about earlier uh, with the gentleman who was talking about the idea of getting rid of anxiety and how to uh, address it. It's still pain. Anxiety, jealousy, destroyed self-worth, all of these are derivative of pain. And in order to deal, in order to live, in order to somehow be happy, you have to go into the pain. You have to begin to name it. Why am I feeling sad, angry, uh, devastated, upset, betrayed? And start journaling all of that out. Start flushing it out and going deeper. Well, uh, what if that hadn't happened? What was the worst part? What am I most looking forward to? Well, what am I feeling now? And keep flushing and flushing and flushing. The reason that we stay stuck in jealousy or lack of self-worth and so forth is that we don't address the not just the feelings that surround that betrayal and that uh, jealousy, but we don't find the origin. So that's the other piece. It's not just flushing out the pain. It's identifying the origins. And this is what I talk about. I'm constantly talking about finding those under, uh, underlying beliefs. And I have chapters in the book where I take you down and help you identify what those messages were that you got about yourself that created the lack of self-worth. Because I have news for you. The betrayal didn't create a lack of self-worth. The lack of self-worth set up the betrayal. And then the betrayal exacerbated those existing, uh, perhaps somewhat dormant feelings of uh, lack of self-worth. And that shit always goes back to childhood, almost invariably goes back to childhood and the messages. And the messages were some derivative of, I'm not wanted, I'm not wantable, I'm not good enough, I'm no good, I'm unlovable. And the real me doesn't matter. And those are extraordinarily powerful messages that get pressed into the cement, the wet cement of a child's soul. Next question. Uh, eight years of emotional abuse. He claims he didn't know he was doing it. He said he has changed. Um, <clears throat> my first question would be, why, why is he now claiming he's changed? Why is he claiming that? What has triggered this response? What has triggered this shift in him now claiming I, uh, I've changed and, uh, and so forth? Why is this conversation even on the table? Now, I'm gonna assume that during those eight years of emotional abuse that you told him that he was emotionally abusing you and that it was hurting you. If that's true, then him saying he didn't know is obviously total bullshit because you told him. Now, if you didn't tell him, well, that's its own problem. Um, but I'm going to assume you did because normally if someone's taking emotional abuse, they are making it clear to the other person that this hurts. So him saying that he didn't know it is just, is just garbage. What's interesting, though, is that last sentence he's, you write, he says that he has changed. Ah, uh, so then he's acknowledging it was emotional abuse. And my question to him would be, <laughs> when did you know? When did you know that you were hurting another human being? Furthermore, I would ask you the question, when did the emotional abuse start? 
Did it start in, you know, exactly eight years ago? Did it start um, after the marriage? Did it start when you were first dating? Did it start? And how did it manifest, its, manifest itself? But here's the really tricky question. And that is, have you seen him treat others the way he treats you? See, if he doesn't treat others the way he treats you, then he has to have consciousness of how he's acting. In other words, if he has employees or if he has a boss, does he act that way towards his boss? And I would actually literally ask him this. Do you, have you ever acted this way towards your boss or towards your employees or towards your coworkers or towards your bud, buddies? Have you ever acted this way? Or if you have children together, have you ever acted this way towards children? And if the response is no, if he responds, no, I don't treat him that way, my question would be, and why is that? <laughs> You're sort of laying a little trap. Well, why don't you treat them that way? I mean, he's going to have to have some answer like, well, because I'd get in trouble or because, I, you know, they'd get mad at me. Exactly. So you do know. You do know the difference between being a fucking asshole and being a decent goddamn human being. You do know. So don't claim you didn't know you were doing it. Unless he treats every single person the way he treats you, which is highly unlikely, unless he treats every other person in his life uh, in an emotionally abusive manner, he is tacitly acknowledging that he knows the difference, i.e. he's lying. And you're saying, you know, he says he's changed and he, you know, what you're fundamentally asking me is you wouldn't even be putting this up here if you weren't the least bit interested in having a relationship with him. So the mere fact that you're even asking this question, Stella, you're basically saying, you know, eight years of emotional abuse, he claims he didn't know he was doing it, he said he's changed. By you even putting it there, you're basically saying to me, I'm considering getting back into a relationship. Gee, should I do it? And so my question to you is, and, and I say this respectfully, and it's not blame the victim or anything like that, it's simply asking you the question, for what possible reason would you ever get back into a relationship with someone who for eight years emotionally abused you? What hole is there inside of you that you are so desperate for a relationship to have someone stay near you, even if they have emotionally abused you for so long? See, this is, this is the issue that you have control over. In some respects, you don't have control over how he acts, but you do have a control over whether or not you allow someone to treat you this way, whether or not you stay in a relationship, let alone whether or not you go back into a relationship. And I'm telling you, someone emotionally abusing you for eight years and now claiming to have you know, found fucking Jesus and he's a new man, I would say no fucking way. That's like somebody you know, cheating on someone for eight years. And there are people who've done it or had multiple cheats over 20 years or one long cheat for 12 years. And then they say, I've changed and I'll never do it. And fuck you. Fuck you. That's what I say to your husband. Fuck you. You emotionally abuse someone for eight years. Do you treat your mother that way? I'd ask him. Do you treat your brothers that way? No, of course you don't. Right? So you acknowledge it's wrong. You acknowledge you knew what you were doing. You only did it because you could get away with it. And now he's trying to get away with getting you back because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to lose you. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. No, don't, don't, don't get into a relationship with him. I wouldn't. And you know what? One more thing on that. And that is how much time has lapsed since he found fucking Jesus, so to speak? How much time has lapsed? When did the eight years of emotional abuse end? Did it end, you know, nine months ago? And then he saw the light and, you know, says he's changed and basically wants a great relationship with you. When did it end? Because 
I doubt very much that he has revolutionized his character in nine months or in three months. I don't doubt it. There's no fucking way. Further, especially if he hasn't been in counseling or something like that. Furthermore, another question you can ask is, oh, so does this mean, I'll just randomly call him, I don't know, I won't call him anything, husband, does this mean that you're willing to go to therapy? Does this mean you would actually look at all of the shit that you have done and you would own every last fucking piece of it? In other words, if you really tighten the fucking thumb screws, watch him squirm. No, he won't want to look at that. You want to know why? Because people who inflict pain or cheat or shit like that, they don't want to be culpable. They want you to get over it. They want you back. Hey, you need to get over it. And if he's pretending to be all fucking namaste right now, give it six months and he'll be sick of the fact that you still don't trust him. He'll be sick of the fact that you're still holding back from him or not you know, fully engaging in the relationship that he wants. This is a manipulative fucker. Do not get into a relationship with this person. Next question. Here we go. Stormy is my baby. Uh, Asked the question, how do I stop regretting things I didn't do in my past to protect myself because I was scared? Okay, so in your past, you didn't engage in things because you were scared and you're wondering how do you stop regretting it? Uh, my answer to that is sort of my answer to all things. Look at it, open it, welcome the pain, welcome the sadness, welcome the regret, welcome all the feelings. Be flushing those out in your conversations with you know a trusted ally or in your journaling. Um, write a letter to your past self, laying everything out, but just keep flushing all of that out and eventually it will pass. And eventually, and you also need to forgive yourself and allow for the fact that you are scared and that that's okay. There is not a person on God's green earth who doesn't have some regrets over things they've done and things they didn't do. It's a normal state of being. But if you are forever looking backwards with guilt or shame or sadness or uh, sad or you know regret, you're not enjoying the present. The way you heal that past, change your decisions now. Start living differently because if you're still looking backwards with regret, it seems to imply that you're not happy with your present. And if you're not happy with your present, change the present. Begin to make it into a joyful experience. Begin to list. Just make two simple lists. Shit that drags the energy out of you, what I call raw sewage, that just bleeds your fucking energy. Shit outside of you and shit inside of you, beliefs that you have, and so forth. Make your list of raw sewage. And then in the other column, make your list of diamonds, the things that give you energy, that breathe life into you. Make those two lists, all right? Or things that you think might breathe life into you and give you energy. Make those two lists. And then start making that raw sewage list shorter. Start reducing the amount of things and the nature of things in your life that suck your energy. Start saying the word no. Life begins at the word no. Start saying no to those things. Make that list shorter and shorter and begin to play with the diamonds list, doing things, engaging in things that breathe life into you. See, getting happy isn't accomplished just by doing more things that make you happy. You have to get rid of the things that are sucking your life energy, that make you unhappy, that hurt you, for either from the inside or from the outside. And so the way you get over the regret is start making a life today that you have no, no desire to escape from. See, you're sort of implying that the misery of your life today causes you to regret decisions in the past. You're escaping from the present by looking at the past and saying, why didn't I... And why didn't I, and oh, I should have. That's because your present isn't happy. So craft a new present, craft a new future. And the happier you become now, the less you'll regret the past. Because the bottom line is, here's the other thing that you can do with regard to regret. Here's the other thing that you can do. In, list every single one of the uh, things in your life that you regret. 
And next to them, uh, under those bullet points, then list, what was that experience sent to teach me? What was my soul trying to teach me about me or about life in that event? See, I believe in all pain, there is a blessing. In all uh, sorrow and misery and regret and hardship, there's a gem of wisdom. There's a, a, a cascading waterfall of insight. I absolutely believe that the pain is the greatest teacher and it always bears gifts. The question is, are you mining your pain and your regret and your sadness and your depression and your anxiety? Are you mining it for the gems of wisdom that it holds? Are you mining it for how it is trying to reshape you and change you so that you become a more full expression of who you really are? Now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. Are you finally ready to turn your life around? Finally get the clarity, happiness, and sense of purpose you've been waiting for your whole life? Then go to BadassCounseling.com now and get the international best-selling book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It changed my life. It'll change yours. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Well, hello again. You're back. I'm back. It's good to have you here. For those of you who are at work while listening to this podcast, for those of you that are on the road, working out, making dinner, hello. And it's nice to be in your ear. I hope I'm not too irritating in your ear. Um, and I hope we're conveying some stuff that's helping you out. I know it's great to have Rob here helping me out, and uh, it's nice to know that we're able to provide a little bit to help people in their lives. I sort of think of myself as nothing more than one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find food. Back to the questions. In all capital letters, so Colin is shouting at me, and I'm okay with that. I'm not in intimidated by Colin's capital letters of shouting. It's like, I'll, I'll hear your message. <laughs> the funny part is, is my father, before he passed away at 92, whenever he would send emails, he always wrote in all capital letters. He didn't realize, dad, you're shouting. You know that? He's like, no, I'm just writing in capital letters. And technically he was right. All right. Why am I still so worried about pleasing people, relationships, work relationships, and friends? Because deep down you have been taught two things that the only way you're going to get people to like you and love you and give you love is by giving them what they want. So in other words, you're getting, you're loving on yourself by proxy. You're fundamentally buying love. It's, as I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. Uh, I have a chapter on a relationship camel. And maybe you guys have heard me mention this before, but just like a camel can go through a desert a long ways on a little bit of water in its hump or fat or whatever it is, a relationship camel can go a long distance on just a little bit of love. So a relationship camel or an extreme people pleaser says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you all of this. Let me take care of that for you. No, I'll get that. Oh, here, I'll do this. Oh, no, 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 you're wonderful. I'll do everything for you. Just give me a little bit of love in return because I can go a long way on a little bit of love. You're investing a huge amount to get a little amount. And so many of my clients, um, you know, in my counseling practice in New York City are in the world of finance. And generally speaking, if you're investing a lot and getting a little, we call that a bad investment. And you abort that stock. Okay, and so you're asking, why are you still so worried about pleasing people, relationships, work relationships, and friends? Why? Because uh, <laughs> you're afraid that if you don't do it, you won't get love. 
It's ultimately fear driven. And underneath that fear, way deep down is a message you got in childhood. And the message you got in childhood is ultimately that you're not, you don't have worth right? So that's why you're selling the farm. You're giving this much love to get this much in return because you've been taught that you just being you isn't good enough to get love, isn't good enough to be loved. So underneath all of the people pleasing is this profound sense of self-loathing or at least absence of self-worth. And so you're still so consumed by this because you want love as we all do. We are all going through life carrying a love cup, trying to get our love cup filled and very often from childhood, that love cup either is empty or a pole has been poked in the bottom and or it's full of crud, not love. It's full of negative messages. And yours is likely full of some serious negative messages, as I talk about in the book. And so you have to get those negative messages out and the self-loathing and all the deep down beliefs that you were taught to believe about yourself. Once you do that, then the, the need to get love from someone else in order to feel worth begins to dissipate and you begin to love yourself and you begin to create a life centered around your values rather than making your life about everyone else's values. All right, next question. Sven uh, said we should ask what the fear is behind the action. My subconscious bag baggage is fighting so bad. Uh, yeah, it is. And not only that, what's fighting you in trying to heal is the fear of experiencing all that pain. So for instance, um, I had a client tell me yesterday, Sven, you know, you're always encouraging me to, you know, with, with these journaling assignments outside of session, you're, you know, encouraging me to write. And I hate journaling, Sven. I said, you hate writing things? And she, and she said, yeah. And I said, no, you don't. You've got lists. You make lists. You make a grocery list. Why do you make a grocery list? Oh, so I can forget about it. And then when I need it, I'll be able to do it. I see. So you don't have problems writing. You just have problems journaling about what's really going on inside of you. So writing in and of itself isn't the problem. And journaling isn't about grammar or syntax or every word being spelled properly. It's not about that bullshit. It's about flushing your feelings out of you. It's not about capturing your thoughts. And so I, what I said to this client is you're just fucking afraid of the shit that's inside of you. And you're running from it. You're running from the work. You're running from how that shit makes you feel. And so uh, the baggage that's fighting you is the, is the very stuff, the very feelings and the memories that you don't want to face. And not just the feelings, but the repercussions of the realizations. One of the reasons that I get people resisting me on going into their past shit is because they don't want to see, A, the pain that they felt. They don't want to feel it again. But B, they don't want to see the truth of what happened. And the truth is mom did this or dad did this or they both did or my siblings did this. And it's just like, then it requires me to realize holy shit, I was a fucking kid. They were, they were extraordinarily hurtful to me. What does that say about them? What does that say about my existing relationship with them? What are the ramifications? Very often people don't want to look at the truth of the past because of the fallout, the ramifications, one of which is very often that I really didn't have parents to begin with. They never loved me to begin with or they weren't there to, for me or they, they've been neglecting me the whole time. They didn't give a shit the whole fucking time. That's a powerful realization to know that potentially you've been alone the whole time. And that's just one possible realization. But if you're having problems journaling, if you're having problems going into your shit in counseling, if you're having problems with your subconscious and baggage and so forth, it's because it's terrifying the shit out of you. And at some point, the pain of how you're living now will outweigh your fear and your terror of that stuff in the past. And you'll go in and finally address it and finally allow it to come up. All right, next question. How do I get rid of the guilt of leaving someone? Well, 
let me ask you this question. Um, is it safe to say that you left them because you had good reason to leave them? Is it safe to say that you left them because the relationship no longer felt good over a significant stretch of time? Not just, oh, we're having a bad week, I'm out, right? Because if it's love, you don't, nobody does that, right? But over a long stretch of time. And so the relationship just got worse, right? And so you made the decision that was right for you to make. And I don't hear you saying you want to make it over or go back. You're saying you just feel bad about it, about making that decision to exit the relationship. And so then I have to believe uh, that the reason uh, that you're feeling bad uh, and feeling guilty about leaving someone is likely because it hurt their feelings, right? There's a, a tricky little question that I like to ask people, and that is, which is harder for you? having someone break up from you or breaking up from someone? And it's a tricky question because on one hand, the obvious answer is, oh, it's always fucking harder having someone break up with you. You know, it's an indicator I'm not wanted, I'm now rejected, something like that. But it's also extraordinarily difficult to break up with someone, particularly if you're a person that actually feels other people's feelings and feels bad for other people and doesn't want to hurt people. It can be very difficult. And there are certain people for whom breaking up is harder than being broken up from raising your hand rob raises his hand when i say that and i'm sort of the same way i don't like to hurt people no rob's a tender soul as well and so when you talk about how do i get rid of the guilt of leaving someone basically you have to acknowledge hey i'm going to assume that you had to make that decision that it was the right decision for you and part of what causes us to feel guilt over hurting another person such as breaking up a relationship particularly if there are children involved or the families knew each other or and friend all the friends around us and so forth um what makes it hard or what causes the guilt is, yes, how we made them feel, um, but also, I just lost it. <laughs> I, I, there was a second thing, and I fucking, oh, God, I just lost that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll fix it. Don't worry. Okay. Oh, here's what it was that I was going to say. No, leave this in. This is good. Leave this in. Um, what makes it guilty very, or makes us feel guilty in leaving someone and breaking up or doing something that may appear selfish is fundamentally what you're doing is you're putting your needs, your feelings above that of someone else. And not just doing that, but knowing that you're doing so is gonna cause them pain. They're gonna be sad, okay? And if there's no sadness in a breakup, there was probably not much love there to begin with, or it was a pretty flaccid relationship, all right? That any breakup comes with uh, tears and grief, all right? That's normal, that is so fucking normal. But what you did in doing this was you prioritized your feelings over that of another. And if you're feeling this guilt that says you're a person who doesn't like to hurt people, which tends to go hand in hand with being a person who deprioritizes their own feelings. So for once in your fucking life, you made your feelings a fucking priority. And I applaud you for that because that's the beginning of life. It's the acknowledgement. It's by you uh, acting on your feelings, you are fundamentally proclaiming to the heavens, I matter. And that's a radical shift in the lives of so many people to begin to engage in patterns of behavior and decision-making that reflects the new core belief, I matter. The real me matters. It's not I matter because I make other people happy. Sure, and we still do that. Any person who loves himself in a genuine and deep and authentic way loves loving on other people too. But the difference between that and the person who's the incessant people pleaser 
or the relationship camel, as I was talking about a minute ago, is the people pleaser, incessant people pleaser, the extreme giver, the relationship camel is just constantly giving. There's no acknowledgement of the needs of self. There's no acknowledgement and acting on my own feelings. So for you to feel guilt over leaving someone is, is good, it's normal, it's an honest reaction, but the leaving that person is the real victory because for once in your fucking life, you're finally beginning to matter to you. And you're never gonna truly matter to someone else until you matter to you and until you engage in a life of decisions based on the core fundamental belief, I matter. The real me matters. All right, uh, next question. Should I feel bad for keeping my kids from their drug-addicted father who claims he's clean? Um, I'm gonna assume that you've been keeping them from the drug-addicted father when he wasn't clean, okay? And if you weren't, that's the problem. And for you to be changing your behavior now, if you are letting them go to a drug addicted father, um, and I'm gonna assume that that drug addiction was highly problematic and bad for the kids and so forth. Because, And if you were letting them go, but now you're not, that says you weren't protecting the kids now, but you're taking, you're keeping the kids from their father now in the name of protecting them when you didn't protect them before. So now it's probably just spite. But I'm gonna assume that you did keep them from their drug addicted father when the father was using. So you're wondering, well, um, I'm still doing it, but he claims he's clean. My question would be, how long? How long? Is this new? Has it been a week? Has it been a month? And how long was the drug addiction you know, going on um, in the kids' lives? Because let's say it was going on for you know six years, and now he's claiming he's been clean for two months. Nope. Nope. There's gotta be a pattern of behavior. Furthermore, um, uh, if are the courts not involved? Have you not brought the courts in? And because what I would recommend is supervised um, time with uh, his kids and that's where it starts. And he proves himself and proves himself and proves himself over time. And then the next step, because anyone who has a pattern of behavior of acting recklessly with their own children is you don't rush back into allowing that. The highest priority here is the children, not even your agenda and not his agenda. The highest priority is the safety and the care of the children, and then also the love, and the roof and the food and the you know, clothes on their back. But yeah, you have an obligation to protect your child, and, and the goal isn't to keep the father out of their lives forever. That would be heartless, unless he's still using drugs, and it's you know the unfortunate decision that has to be made. Um, but if he is in fact clean, it has to be proven, especially if he has a long history of the addiction. Um, and in this, just uh, as a side note, your kids need to be either in counseling or um, have some uh, adult in their life that they can trust and open up to besides yourself. Because children very often won't share feelings, their real feelings, not only about the other parent, but about you, um, to you <laughs> or to the parents. And so for them to have someone and get used to flushing out that pain, because I guarantee them not spending time with their father hurts them. Whatever the reason, the reason isn't the, the point. To a child, it hurts. I, I love my parents. Every child loves their parents. And they want to be with them and so forth, unless that, of course, is taken advantage of or harmed, which to some degree it has in this case, but there's still pain inside that child. And if that pain is not allowed to get out, that pain is going to be stored inside that child, and that will just create increasing problems, not just for the children, but quite frankly, for you. That pain will manifest in that teenager or in that 20 something. All right, next question. Does the journaling actually work? I keep hearing different ways to heal trauma. My response is this, I was in a 12 year suicidal depression. 
I never had a therapist who could help me more than you know a session or two. And it, I just felt it wasn't helping. But the whole time I was journaling. My mother had got me started journaling when I was about 13, 14 years old. And she knew that I had a lot going on inside of me. And she just said, hey, try this. And it stuck. And I kept doing it. And so then when I was in my you know 20s and into my 30s, um, I was in a very, very, very deep depression that culminated in, or excuse me, was highlighted by uh, a suicide attempt. Cut my arms open for, bled for an hour. Um, and the thing that healed me in the end wasn't drugs. And I'm not opposed to psychopharmacology. It's not my business. I'm not a psychologist. I have no comment on that. Um, and it wasn't uh, even counseling. It was me counseling myself. It was me reading literally thousands of books in the field of self-help, spirituality, um, theology, um, new age, anything where I thought that I could get another piece of wisdom, another something that would help me heal. And I did it myself. And part of that is flushing out all of the feelings, but also using journaling as a tool to determine who I really am, what I really think, what I really feel, what's going on in my life, my interpretation of my life. I want you to imagine, if you would, imagine a, a clothesline. I don't know if people still have them nowadays, but we had one in our backyard growing up that, you, you know, we've all seen them. You hang your clothes, you pin your clothes uh, pin uh, to the clothes on the clothesline, they dry out in the wind, right? And my mom, being a true northern you know, Minnesota woman, uh, well into her 90s, she would put the, the uh, clothes on the clothesline, even in winter, in a Minnesota winter. And there's no winter so brutal as that, at least not in the United States, except Alaska. But the point is this, imagine a clothesline and on that clothesline are, you know, uh, one of the squares, a, a Rubik's Cube. The standard Rubik's Cube is three basically panels with all these little squares on them, right? Imagine taking it apart. So you've got those three separate panels. Now imagine those three separate panels and about a thousand more strung right through the center on a long clothesline. And so what my life was in my 20s and 30s and even uh, slightly into my 40s was this constant adjusting of each of those dials on this clothesline long Rubik's Cube. And so one of those dials represented anger. One of those dials represented the types of people I enjoy being around. One of those dials represented um, what I think of exercise, how I feel about exercise. All these different dials representing every single aspect of my life. And what I was doing in that journaling, what journaling provided for me was clarity. I began to adjust the dials. Well, you know what? I like exercise when I'm feeling um, energetic, but I don't like it as much when I'm a bit down. And so I let go of the exercise. So that's it. I cranked that dial about half a tick backwards and the uh, energy one, you know, I was constantly adjusting the dials till over time. And all of this was through my own journaling and all these other books that I was reading, finding exercises and so forth. Um, I was uh, adjusting those dials of uh, that had been stripped from Rubik's Cubes, adjusting those dials on that clothesline to determine who I am to have greater and greater insight to who I am. Another way of imagining it, if I may mix metaphors, we've all seen pictures in you know music studios with these giant mixing boards, right? And all these dials and fucking knobs and twisty turnies and blinky lighties and all this shit, right? Like Rob has right here on our control panel. 
Every one of those, imagine every one of those labeled with some aspect of who you are. And you're constantly fine-tuning and adjusting and uh, doing course adjustments and fine adjustments. And you're constantly adjusting. Well, what journaling enables us to do by flushing out, by codifying who you really are, what you really think, what you really feel, you're making those adjustments on the mixing board. You're making those adjustments in those uh, Rubik's dials on that clothesline. And the more you do it, the greater clarity you have of who you are. Does journaling actually work? You goddamn right. And we'll be right back with more Badass Counseling right after this. It took me to the place that scared me the most, the crap I've been running from my whole life, the stuff that's been dragging me down, and it literally began the healing. I feel lighter, clearer, and just happier. Finally, some freaking peace. You got to get this book. There's a hole in my love cup. Or the do-it-yourself video courses. All at badasscounseling.com. It's totally killer stuff. What's the badass got next? Oh, hell yes. I'll tell you what I have next. I have more lightning round. We're getting into some great questions on a myriad of issues. And the next one is how to let go, Sven. I've tried from my ex and it's holding my life back. I'm so heartbroken and it's crippling. The way you let go is exactly what you don't think it is. The way you let go is by holding on as tightly as you can. I've never seen a better way. Anybody who's saying, oh, you just need to let go. It's like, yeah, but what the fuck does that mean? How? The truth is, if you're holding on, it's because the heart is holding on. The heart has its reasons that reason cannot know, to quote the great mathematician and spiritual writer, Blaise Pascal. The heart has its reasons that reason cannot know. And so what you do is you begin flushing out all of those feelings. I would strongly recommend writing a letter that you do not send that flushes out all of your feelings towards your ex and writing out everything, every memory, every emotional charge that is attached to every memory that you have and decharging those emotional memories uh, or those memories of the emotion. The way you let go is keep holding on, keep thinking about the person, keep going to the spots that were your favorite spots. Go have pizza at the place you guys used to love to go have pizza at. Go for a walk in the favorite park that you guys used to go for a walk in. Pull out the pictures, reminisce. As you're reminiscing while looking at those pictures, write out, keep flushing out what you're feeling. So have that pad of paper and you're writing, and you're writing while you're looking at the pictures or while you're touching those mementos that you still have. Feel it, allow it, allow it. Because if you pack that shit down, it doesn't magically go away. If you bottle it up, oh, it's gone now. No, no, no. If there's one thing I hope you guys have learned from me is that bottling up fucking feelings only kicks that can down the motherfucking road, and it will bite you hard in the ass later. So you got to get that shit out and just sit in it, all of it, because to some degree, we, we walk along sort of trying to avoid those feelings, even though we know they're there and they come out a little bit here and there, you cry now and then. And the reason it sort of burps out like that in little increments is because you're not just flushing it all out. So the question, how do I let go? I've tried to let go from my ex and it's holding my life back. I'm so heartbroken and it's crippling. All right, so right on the heartbreak. Write it all out. Keep flushing it all out. And the more you do that, eventually it'll be gone. Until the pain is out of you, it's still in you. But once it's out of you, it's no longer in you. And you can move on with your life. All right, next question. How do I operate as a sane person in dating when I have mommy and daddy issues? Well, forgive me, for, and I'm not trying to be a douche. I'm just so good at being a douche. So I figure I'll play my strengths. <laughs> 
how do I operate as a sane person in dating when I have mommy and daddy issues? My question is, why are you dating if you still have mommy and daddy issues? Are you aware of the fact that when we have issues, whether it's mommy and daddy issues or pain from our past or um, uh, bad beliefs that we've been taught about ourselves, that those are driving or at the very least influencing any decision you make today? Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, if there's a virus in your computer, that virus, especially if it's a strong one, it's affecting every single aspect of the computing on that fucking computer. It's affecting everything. It's affecting your ability to open up files. I, I got a problem right now. I'm, I'm working on my next book. And every fucking morning, I'll write a chapter, two chapters, whatever, and I'll have to, and then my fucking uh, office software will freeze up. And I have to constantly be saving, and so I'll have to shut down Office and reopen the fucking thing. It takes five minutes. There's some kind of fucking virus in there. And I know dick about computers. And I really don't have the time to go to Geek Squad or something. And so I just fucking... And so it's affecting all aspects of my fucking work and my life. Because I write a lot, as you might guess, as a you know guy who writes books. And you know in my work, I'm... Con and so it's just like a pain in the ass. If you have a virus in there, it's going to affect your computing on your computer. Well, it's the same way with mommy and daddy issues. Your mommy and daddy issues will affect your dating. It will cause you to distrust your instincts. And no doubt those mommy and daddy issues have uh, infected you with beliefs that you were taught about yourself that you can't even see. I'm not talking about the ones you can see. I'm talking about the ones you can't see. Those messages that got pressed into the wet cement of your childhood soul and hardened and calcified, and now they are the virus infecting you. So if you're dating with mommy and daddy issues, you are fundamentally creating a relationship based on a false version of yourself. You are creating a relationship based on a broken version of yourself, an unfulfilled version of yourself. You are not going into dating as your best person. You are going into dating as a person being driven by things that you're not even aware are driving you in or not even aware of all the ways it's driving you. So just saying I have mommy and daddy issues, but I respect you for saying that, I do. I respect you for acknowledging that you got some shit going on. And the truth is we all do. But the more work you do on it, the less you have those issues. That's how you wanna go into dating. Having done your issues, uh, you know, worked on your issues and gotten that shit out. It's the same way as when you end a relationship or someone ends a marriage and says, Sven, you know, what do I need to do, you know, if I'm going to consider going into a new marriage? Uh, and I say, heal your shit. Because otherwise you're just taking all your issues from your old relationship and your childhood that created those issues in your old relationship and you're just walking right into the next relationship. Not good. You're just going to have the same fucking problems or bigger problems or different problems or worse problems. But unless you go to the root of what's driving it, you know, you're gonna have problems. So uh, operating as a sane person in dating, if you have mommy and daddy issues, stop. You don't need to date right now. You don't wanna date right now because trust me, if you start dating and that leads to a long-term relationship and you uh, started the relationship with those issues, it's gonna fucking blow up that relationship or it's gonna become this slow fucking bleed on your relationship. Next question. Oh, 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 oh. I'm living in my car, I'm homeless, I'm losing hope in a future where I get out of this, I'm stuck in the past. All right, I have lived in my car and I even lived on the street, slept on concrete every single night for two and a half years in Oakland, California. Nah, the streets out there are not a nice place to be. <laughs> and yes, I even lived in my car. All right, so I know where you're at. I have literally experienced what you are experiencing. 
And so you're asking, you know, uh, you're, you're losing hope of a future where you get out of this. Uh, you're stuck in the past. Yeah, the, the homelessness is a result. It's not a cause. It's a result of the very thing you say, stuck in the past. And so it would seem then that if I could unstick myself from the past, I could create a present or begin to create a future. And so the, the trick, as I've said with so many things already tonight, the trick is to go into that past and begin to identify and release and pull out of you the pain, the hurt, the fears, the BS beliefs you were taught about yourself, begin to pull that out. But if you're stuck in the past, what very often that means, it's not that you're stuck in the past, it's that you're afraid to go into the past to get unstuck. In other words, it's affecting you, it's dragging you down, but you're terrified of actually addressing it, turning and facing the very tidal wave of all that shit from your past. You've been trying to run your whole life and it's dragged you down your whole life. But the thing that you have to do is turn and face it and begin to allow all of that to come out and begin to allow, face all of the very thing you've been running from. That's why you're staying stuck. And once you face that and more and more get that out through journaling, through self-help uh, materials and through the other uh, tools I've mentioned, you will begin to free yourself up. I'm gonna take one more question. How do you dig into your childhood if you don't remember it? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, 10 question marks. That's a great one that I get all the time. The way you dig into something you don't remember is start with what it is in your past you do remember. Now I'm going to guess, and it's a bit of a reach, I'm going to guess you remember yesterday, right? Start with yesterday. I'm going to guess you remember a month ago of when that person said that thing that hurt your feelings. Start there. Leave the childhood. It's not going anywhere, all right? There are things, the reason that you've forgotten your childhood very often is the child's brain shuts down as a self-protection mechanism. There's so much pain swirling about that the child's brain can't handle it. And the human animal has this remarkable, beautiful function that basically uh, wipes away those memories as a way to protect that child who can't handle it all. And so you begin with the pain that you can see in your past, even if it's yesterday. And you begin flushing it out. You begin using these tools, whether in your counseling or in your journaling or in your letter writing, and you begin to get that out. And you know what happens when we get one thing out? When we acknowledge and address one pain source, another one reveals itself from four weeks ago. And then another one reveals itself from, oh, uh, just happened on Tuesday to another one that happened about seven years ago and on and on and on. So you start with what presents itself. You know, play the ball as it lays and work with the pains that you can see. And I guarantee you more and more is gonna come up. And I also recommend getting the book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, because I give you tools for doing precisely this and it begins to unearth itself very, very quickly. Well, my fine friends, humans, everyone listening out there in the world to the Badass Counseling Show podcast, and those of you that have been here live with me this evening, it's been fantastic. And uh, I hope we've helped you. And I know I enjoy very much uh, being here with you, as do my producers, Rob and KC. So on behalf of my production team, I say, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.